Well, brothers and sisters, this is our Father's world, as the hymn says. Whether people like it or not, this is our Father's world. As Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17, we live and move and have our being in God, the true and living God, the God of the Bible. And one of the principles that is observable in God's moral universe might be stated like this. Light or truth repeatedly rejected will lead to light withdrawn. This is illustrated to us in Romans 1. You need not turn there. I'll just be there for a few moments. But in Romans 1, we are told that the heathen, those who do not have the privilege of knowing the Bible and having special revelation, nevertheless have the light of knowledge of God through the creation. Verse 20 says, For since the, cre the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. All men everywhere know something of God through the creation. But what do they do with that knowledge? Well, verse 18 says, They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And verse 21a says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. The result of rejecting that light of God from creation is that they become darkened in their minds and degraded in their morals. And so the latter half of verse 21 says they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And in verses 24, 26, and 28, in each of those verses, it says God gave them over. God gave them over to the lusts of their flesh. God abandoned them. It's, it's called the doctrine of reprobation. And so Romans 1 illustrates this principle. Light or truth repeatedly rejected will lead to light withdrawn. This is also illustrated by Proverbs chapter 1. You need not turn there either. But in Proverbs chapter 1, we are told that wisdom, which is the key to knowing God and the key to life, wisdom is abundantly available and accessible. Verses 20 and 21 tell us wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out at the entrance of the gates in the city. She utters her sayings. Wisdom is abundantly available. And yet to read on, we read that this wisdom that is so available is spurned. In verses 24 and 25, we read, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. And what happens when wisdom crying in the streets is rejected and spurned? The sad results are seen in verses 26 and following. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a, like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Do you see the principle illustrated again? Light, truth, repeatedly rejected will lead to light withdrawn. And perhaps there is no clearer example in Scripture of people who are guilty of repeatedly rejecting truth from God than the religious leaders in the time of Jesus. Again and again, what Paul calls the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ shined unto them. But what happened? They rejected it. They pushed it away. They suppressed it. They didn't come to the light of truth as it is in Jesus. 
And so, when near the end of his ministry, his enemies confront him in the temple, trying to trap him and saying, by what authority do you do these things? We find that Jesus answers, but he doesn't answer as he would answer somebody who was a sincere seeker of the truth. He answers in a way that would expose their own dishonesty and their foul motive in asking the question. He answers them with a question. They ask a question, and he says, well, let me ask you. The ministry of John, was it from heaven or from men? And he put them on the horns of a dilemma. They were forced to say, we don't know. And his enemies were defeated and confounded, left wallowing in their darkness and shame. But Jesus' enemies are not finished with him. They will pursue him even that week to the point of death. But Jesus is not finished with them either. And as we saw last week from that passage at the end of Mark, and I ask you to be turning to Mark chapter 12 now, Mark 12, but as we saw that Jesus was put on the defensive, being asked that question, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus now turns to going on the offensive. They're not finished with Jesus but Jesus is not finished with them either. And the way he deals with them in the passage we will study further illustrates what he perceived to be the state of their hearts. They were not sincerely seeking truth. And so when Jesus speaks to them in what will be our text for this morning, Mark 12, 1 to 12, he speaks to them in the form of parables. And do you remember from earlier on in Mark the purpose of parables? I'll read to you Mark 4, 11 and 12, which says, He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. You see, the purpose of a parable was to reveal the truth to those who were earnestly seeking it, but it was also to conceal the truth from those who didn't want it. There's a sense in which parables are a form of judgment upon those who were not sincere seekers of truth, as were the enemies of Jesus here. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, uh, what is recorded is three parables that Jesus gave to indict his enemies. Mark only gives us one. And so this morning, the parable of the vineyard, Mark 12, 1 to 12, follow as I read. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But these, those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. We want to see three simple things from this parable. The parable stated, the parable supported, and then the parable strikes home. First, the parable stated, and here we'll spend most of the time. You remember what a parable is from earlier on in Mark? A parable is basically a a means of teaching by which the speaker of the parable gives an earthly story that illustrates a spiritual truth. The very word parable indicates that. It's a compound word in Greek. It comes from the Greek word para, which means alongside of, you know, like a paramedic or a paralegal, and the word balo, which means to throw or cast down. So it's, it's two things thrown or cast down beside one another. You have the earthly story that illustrates a spiritual lesson, a spiritual truth. That's what a parable is. And uh, Jesus gives this parable of the vineyard. And so as we go through it, I'm going to explain both the earthly aspect and the spiritual meaning, which I think will be plain to you. It begins with the words, a man planted a vineyard. Now, vineyards were very common in Palestine, and they were very valuable and profitable. The Song of Solomon tells us in chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. But the vineyard here is clearly a reference to the nation of Israel, especially the theocracy under Moses and beyond. Frequently, the Old Testament refers to Israel under the image of vine. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 80, verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Clearly, Israel is the vine. Jeremiah 2.21, the Lord himself says, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. The vine in the parable is the nation of Israel. First of all, note that there's an investment in the vineyard. Again, verse 1, and he, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. This man doesn't simply come to possess this vineyard. He creates the vineyard. He plants it himself. He does all the work necessary to make this vineyard. He tills the ground. He he prepares the soil. He sows the seeds. Then he puts a wall around the vineyard. That wall could have been either of stone or of hedges. We read in Proverbs 24 of the sluggard who has his, his vineyard, has its wall, its stone, its stone wall broken down. In other places, the wall would have been a hedge row. The wall was to protect from thieves and from animals, such as foxes. In the Song of Solomon, we read the little foxes that are ruining the vineyard. And in Psalm 80, where I was in my devotions recently, it refers to boars. You removed a vine from Egypt. A boar from the forest eats it away. And as I read that in my devotions, I was reminded that Martin Luther was accused of being a, a wild boar let loose in God's vineyard. You ever read that? You know, he was tearing up the vineyard. In reality, Martin Luther was used of God to bring truth back to the church. It was the Roman Catholic Church that was the boar that was ruining the vineyard. But that's where that reference comes from. So this man digs and prepares this this, uh, um, 
this wine press. He builds a, a wall around it. Uh, then it says he digs a vat under the wine press. A typical wine press would have been dug out of rock. It would have an upper cavity and a lower cavity. The upper cavity would be wide and shallow. And that's where the grape treader would come and he would tread the grapes with his feet. Then there was a pipe between that upper wide cavity and the lower one, which was narrower and deeper. And that's where the, the juice from the grapes would flow down and then it would be collected. We read in Isaiah 63 too, it describes such a wine treader. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? And then the owner of the vineyard builds a tower. The tower would have been to contain the grapes. It would also be a shelter for the watchman whose job it was to guard the vineyard against pillagers or any animal intruders. So everything possible was done to, to take care of this vineyard to make sure that it would yield fruit. And what is the spiritual parallel here? Well, we already said that Israel is the vineyard. And clearly, Jesus is making reference to what we read in Isaiah chapter 5. And you need not turn there. But Isaiah 5, we read these words comparing Israel to a vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a, vine, a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Do you see clearly how Jesus is drawing his parable from this passage in Isaiah, where Israel is the, the, the vine, the vineyard that God had prepared. A fuller picture of God's tender care and creation of his nation Israel is given in Ezekiel 16. Let me read to you a section about God's care for Israel, the way he birthed Israel and cared for Israel, beginning in Ezekiel 16.6. He says, When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, Live! Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen, and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. And he goes on. He's talking about his creation of Israel, how he created Israel, how he cared for Israel in its, in its birth, and how he beautified Israel under the image of, a, of a, a man with his wife. Scripture is not prudish there. And these images of beautification, all to depict the way God formed Israel and beautified Israel. God had invested much in the nation of Israel. He grew the nation from one couple, Abraham and Sarah, he multiplied the nation, bringing her into Egypt, 
giving them a safe place to live, the land of Goshen, where they became a great number over 400 years. And then he sprang them to freedom through the Red Sea under Moses. He gave them his law on Mount Sinai, laws which protected them from the corruption of the nations around them. Why? Because he called them to be a peculiar and a holy people. God had invested much in Israel. It is noted that even geographically they were protected. On the west side, there was the Mediterranean Sea. On the east, there were the rivers. On the north, there were the mountains of Lebanon. On the south, there was a desert. So even physically and geographically, God protected Israel to be a very special people. So even as this man in the parable invests in this vineyard and builds the vineyard and ensures the protection of the vineyard so that the vineyard will will bear fruit, God had invested in Israel. And so there's the investment. But then there's an entrustment. Look at back to our text. Again, verse 1. After building that vineyard, it says he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. This was commonplace in Palestine. A man would build a vineyard, be the owner of the vineyard, and he would rent it out to tenants, and there would be an arrangement by which he would derive some of the fruit, a portion of the crop, as a return on his investment. Spiritually speaking, the vine growers would correspond to the spiritual leaders in Israel, the ones entrusted with the care of the people. In Ezekiel 34.2, we read, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. And in Malachi 2.7, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So even as this vineyard owner entrusts the care of the vineyard to certain men to care for it, Vine growers, God had entrusted Israel to shepherds, to priests, to spiritual leaders who would teach them and guide the people. And he affirmed that authority. But then there's an expectation of a return on his investment. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. That was the whole purpose in planting the vineyard, right? That he might get a profit from it. And so, at the appropriate time, he sends messengers, representatives from himself to receive some benefit from his investment. Spiritually, what would that have been? What did God expect of Israel? Well, he expected them to be his people, to listen to him when he spoke, to repent of their sin, to seek him with all their heart, and to be a holy people. That's what they were called to be. Then there's also a representation, verse 2. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. These men were sent in the name of the owner. They represented him. They spoke for him. They acted on his behalf. Who are these in the spiritual parallel? These would be the prophets the prophets that were sent by God on a special mission from time to time to Israel. Eighteen times in the Old Testament, prophets are referred to as my servants, the prophets, or in the third person, his servants, the prophets. These men were distinct from the regular teachers and rulers in the nation. 
They were sent on special missions. When Israel was declining in its faith, the prophets were sent to warn the people and to call them back to God. So even as these, the owner of the vineyard sent representatives to receive the prophet, so God sent prophets to Israel. And then there's rejection of the servants, verses 3 to 5. So the owner sends a slave What did they do? They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. What an appalling turn of events. You're reading this story here, and things are going along, and you're saying, yeah, this makes sense. A man plants a vineyard, and he does everything to secure its fruitfulness. And he appoints certain people to care for the vineyard. And then at a certain time, he sends representatives to come and, and get his, his profit, his share of the crops. Then all of a sudden, you, you read about what they do to, to this man. They, they, they beat him. And it's the same word used in Acts 5 of what was done to Peter and John by the authorities. It's the same word used about what Paul, as Saul, did to Christians before he was converted. He would beat them. And so this man is sent, and he's beaten. Then another representative is sent, and he's wounded in the head, and he's treated with contempt. He's embarrassed, much like David's representatives were embarrassed in the Old Testament by um, Hanan when they cut off, the king cut off half their beards and and cut off their garments to their hips, and, and they did that to shame and embarrass these men. And so these representatives are sent to the vine growers, and they're, they're ashamed. They're, they're, they're shamed. A third representative is sent, and he's killed, and many others suffering similar fates. Some are beaten, and some are killed. Now, as you're reading so far, there are two realities that ought to hit us in the face. One is the unmitigated vicious and wickedness, vicious, viciousness and wickedness of the vine growers. The second is the unimaginable patience of the owner of the vineyard. On the one hand, how could men be so despicable and heartless and cruel to do these things to the servants. On the other hand, how can a man possibly be so patient and forbearing? The spiritual parallels here are obvious. On the one hand, the way these representatives were treated by the vine growers is the way that the people of Israel historically treated the prophets. First of all, they ignored their message and they did violence to their persons. I want you to hear a few verses from Jeremiah about how the message of the prophets were typically received. I'm going to read from Jeremiah. You see a repeated theme here, Jeremiah 25.4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. Proverbs 26 and verse 5, I mean, rather, Jeremiah 26 and verse 5 to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened. Proverbs 29 and verse 19. Not Proverbs, Jeremiah. Because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen, declares the Lord. And Proverbs, I keep saying Proverbs, Jeremiah 35 and verse 15, 
Also, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. The prophets were sent again and again, but the people didn't listen. Not only that, they did violence to their persons. Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. Micaiah, a faithful prophet in the time of Ahab, was put in prison and was given only bread and water to eat. In 2 Kings 6, we're told that that the king of Israel threatened to behead the prophet Elisha. The prophet Zechariah was stoned to death at the command of King Joash. Not only was their message rejected, but we can read through Kings and Chronicles and see how violence was done to the faithful prophets by Israel under its kings. But then on the other hand, we see from the parable the amazing love and patience of God. What real-life vineyard owner would endure all that he endured, sending slave after slave to these vine growers, each one beaten or killed? And again, you read again and again, just like with the prophets, God sent again and again the amazing patience and forbearance of God in sending his prophets. At this point, we should note that there's a difference between Jesus' parable here And Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, that picture of Israel as the vineyard, what is in view is the fruitlessness of the vineyard, the fruitlessness of Israel. But what is the focus here is the wickedness of the leaders. They bore the brunt of the parable. It was aimed at them. It was these leaders in Israel who were beating the servants of God. That is Jesus' point. But we're not finished with this matter of rejection because with incredible patience and forbearance, we see the vineyard owner is going to make one last attempt to appeal to the the vine keepers and to get a return on his investment. He has an ace in the hole. He has a trump card. And so verse 6 says he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But what happens? Verses 7 and 8. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's pretty clear to whom this is referring, right? This is a reference to Jesus, predicting what will happen to himself at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And it is interesting that he makes a distinction between the servants and the son. The writer to Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3, making a distinction between the servants of God and the son of God. When the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And so in the parable, there were the servants, there were the slaves, and there was the son. The servants of God are the prophets, but there's a distinction between them and the son. Also an interesting parallel in the book of Hebrews. What did they do to the son in the parable? It says... They said, this is the heir, come let us kill him. 
and they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, out of the vineyard, parallel to Hebrews 13, which talks about Jesus suffering outside the gate. So what is Jesus doing here in this parable? He's holding up a mirror in front of these religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and he's saying, take a good look. What your forefathers did to God's servants, the prophets, you are going to do to the son. They killed the prophets. They beat the prophets. You are going to kill the son. One final point here under this first point, there is retribution. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do, says Jesus? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So all of that is the parable stated. Let's look very briefly at the parable supported. From there, where does Jesus go? He tells the parable, and then he says, have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. To back up and support the parable, Jesus reaches back to a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was quoted by the people who welcomed Jesus in the triumphal entry, where they quote part of the psalm, which says, O Lord, save, we beseech you, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus draws upon two other verses in the psalm, verses 22 and 23, which read like this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is applying that messianic psalm to himself. Now, maybe in the original psalm, Israel was the cornerstone rejected by the nations, but Jesus is saying, this ultimately applies to me. The stone which is rejected in Psalm 118, he's saying is referring to himself. The builders who rejected the stone are the vine growers in the parable and the religious leaders. The rejection corresponds to rejecting and murdering the heir The chief cornerstone is the cornerstone that is at the foundation of a building that determines the position of the two walls and determines the shape of the entire building. A cornerstone is absolutely crucial. We come to the New Testament, and what do we read? That Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, So then you are no longer, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens. Your fellow citizens with the saints are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It is Christ who brings together this new covenant community of Jew and Gentile. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He is the cornerstone in the parable being rejected by the leaders of Israel. Now, finally, we have the parable strikes home, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. They got the point. They understood where they fit in the parable, that they were the vine growers who had killed and beaten the prophets and who were prophesied as killing the son. They got it. It was about them. They would have taken Jesus right there to destroy him, but they feared the people. It is interesting how sometimes one sin will hold another sin in check. So it wasn't quite Jesus' time. So there's the parable of the vineyard. Jesus goes on the offensive. They put him on his heels. They put him on the defensive. 
by what authority do you do these things? He comes back and counters it, silences them, confounds them. And now he goes on the offensive and he indicts his enemies with this parable. What are some applications we can take for ourselves? First of all, I think we can say that great privilege means great responsibility. Can you see that from the parable? Israel was greatly privileged by God. In Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, you only do I have of all the nations of the earth. You're the only nation that I've chosen to be my special people. How privileged they were to be the people of God. But with that privilege came responsibility and expectation. God expected fruit from them. How might we apply that? I think we can apply it to our own nation. We are a very privileged and blessed nation. It is safe to say that we are the most prosperous and free nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Why? Because our nation is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. But we are trampling upon that heritage. We are rejecting the morality founded upon the law of God revealed in the Bible. We're flouting God's moral law with amazing arrogance and impudence in our day. We're rejecting the fact that there even is a creator God. We're rejecting his moral law concerning genders, male and female, his, his law regarding marriage between a man and a woman. We are adopting a philosophy that was formulated by a God-hating man, Karl Marx. Socialism and communism is on the rise in our country, though it has been proven historically to be destructive to human dignity, destructive to human freedom, destructive to hundreds of millions of lives, and yet our nation is buying in to those presuppositions. So privileged we are, and yet we are spurning those privileges. And remember, greater light, rejected, Light rejected will be light withdrawn. And the more light we have, the greater our accountability to God. What does that mean? It means we need to work hard to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And we need to cry to God, Lord, in the midst of wrath, will you remember mercy? We have spurned so many of our privileges. We're trampling upon our heritage. Please be merciful to us as a nation. But then we can apply this principle to ourselves as individuals. Great privilege means great responsibility. We are so blessed to be born into this country despite all of its faults and flaws. It really is a land of opportunity, isn't it? And we're often reminded during election times, there was a woman who came in third in the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race, and, and she's quick to say that she was raised in poverty. And although she didn't win, she got to run for the Senate. There are only 100 people who are senators, and, and from poverty, she was given that opportunity. It is truly a land of opportunity. It is a land that has been saturated with the gospel. You can go to almost any town or township, and, and there's a, a church on nearly every corner. This is truly a blessed nation into which we have been privileged to live. Many of you children are being raised in Christian homes by godly Christian parents. And so I would appeal to some of you children who have not yet trusted Jesus. You have been given much. You have been blessed above so many children on the earth. There are children raised in Muslim homes and Buddhist homes and, and unbelieving atheistic homes and Hindu homes where they, they don't even have access to the gospel. 
but you children are raised in a home where, where, where the gospel is saturated and we, you have Christians who are living consistently, not perfectly, but consistently with the gospel. And I say to you children living in a Christian home, you have a great privilege, but you have a great responsibility. And I would plead with you to believe in Jesus, believe in the God of your parents, the, the, the Jesus your parents are teaching you about and I am teaching you about. Because if you don't, the judgment upon you will be harder than it will be upon some Muslim kid or Hindu kid who never heard the gospel. So please, children, raised in Christian homes, take advantage of the, the privilege you have and believe in Jesus. And then to you, my brothers and sisters, God has given us much. He has not only saved us, but he has invested much in us. He has given us material prosperity. He's given us freedoms that many don't enjoy. He's given all of us spiritual gifts with which we are to build up the body of Christ and win the lost. And so the lesson for us is, are we being good stewards of what God has given to us? We are blessed above so many people. Are we making the most of what God has given? Are we being good stewards to build up the church and to seek to win the lost with what God has entrusted with us. We were in California and there we had occasion to drive about three and a half hours north to visit one of Swan's very generous donors. He is a, a Christian man raised in a fairly poor Mexican family. God has blessed him abundantly and, and he has wealth. But what struck me with this visit to this brother, and I said it to him, you're using the mammon of unrighteousness for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's doing all he can to spread the gospel and to use the wealth God has given him to share the gospel, including uh, being a great benefit to Swan. We need to make the most of what God has given us. We are stewards. Another lesson from the passage is surely about the great patience of God. The owner of the vineyard displays amazing patience as he sends slave after slave, servant after servant. They're beaten, they're killed. Then he sends his son. They'll receive my son, and his son is killed. It certainly is meant to teach us about the great, incredible patience and forbearance of God. We see that patience of God spoken of by Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 when he says Christ also died for sins, once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, and, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. How patient God was, 120 years it took to build that ark. And, and Noah was a, a preacher of righteousness. He's preaching to the people. None of them believe, but how patient God was before he brought the flood. And that patience of God is still continuing. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you are an unbeliever, God has been patient with you. You're still alive. You still have breath in your lungs. You have not died and gone to hell. God has been patient with you. Don't be like the Jews who presumed upon God's patience. They thought because God was dealing well with them that it was because God was favoring them. Paul had to tell them in Romans 2.4, no, no. 
The kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. God has been kind to you, unbeliever. He has spared your life. He's kept the breath in your lungs. He kept you alive so that you might repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Don't presume upon God's patience. And believers, I think we can say how patient God has been with us. Like the Getty hymn says, For hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come. Hasn't God been patient with you and me again and again? He should discard us, but he continues to use us. We need to frequently thank him and praise him for his great patience and forbearance with us as his people. And it also teaches us to be patient with one another. You know, all the people of God are called to be patient with one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we're told, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. That's a directive to all the people of God. Be patient with all men. We who are pastors are especially called to be patient. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. I need to be patient with the people of God, but we all need to be patient with one another. We sang the hymn, Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us, though we treat him thus. Have you been provoked? Have you been wounded? Have you been hurt, wronged, or slighted by someone? Let's become more like our Heavenly Father, who is so unbelievably patient with his people. But even though God's patience is great, God's judgments are sure. He's incredibly great in his patience, but he's a God of justice and he must judge in righteousness. Yes, he was patient in Noah's day, waiting all that time as Noah preached, but his patience gave way to wrath and eventually the, the, the foundations of the deep were opened up and there was a horrifying worldwide flood and everyone died except for eight people. He was patient with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He would have spared those cities if there were but 10 righteous people, but there weren't. And he rained down fire and brimstone upon them. He was patient with the Canaanites. The Old Testament speaks of a cup of God's wrath that was eventually filling up. He was so patient at one point saying, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He was being patient with these pagan nations. But eventually the cup got full and he sent his people in to wipe them out. Men, women, children, infants, harem, spare none. And he brought justice and judgment upon those pagan nations. He was patient with Israel again and again. He sends his son who weeps over the nation and cries out. And this is directed at the leaders. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city which kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. How patient Jesus was with the nation of Israel. And yet in 70 AD, Titus comes in with the Roman legions and because of the stubbornness of the Jewish people, unspeakable horrors ensued. Josephus tells us parents even ate their own children. How patient God will be with our nation. Who knows? We need to continue to pray, Lord, in the midst of wrath, remember mercy. And if you are an unbeliever, God is patient, but his patience has a limit. 
don't test it. There's a proverb that says, he who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Some of you children, you hear the gospel throughout the week from your parents. You hear it from me every Sunday. Please don't reject it anymore. Let today be the day where you say, I repent of my sins and I put my trust in Jesus to save me. Because he who hardens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. Don't let that happen to you. Very briefly, we can say from this parable, leaders have a heightened responsibility, don't they? The leaders were responsible for the state of the nation in many ways. James tells us those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, I have a greater responsibility, a greater accountability. And all who are leaders, if you're a parent over children, if you're a civil leader in government, if you're a shepherd in the church, we have greater responsibility and greater accountability. And we need to take that seriously. But then finally, God's messengers should be heeded. Isn't that another message? He sent his servants again and again, and he sent his son. They didn't listen. The lesson from that is when God sends his servants, we need to listen. Children, God has given you parents, and your main duty in life is children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It will be the path of blessing for you to obey your parents, unless they tell you to sin, which I'm confident they will not. It's for us to obey the civil authorities, unless they command us to do something God forbids or forbid us to do something God commands, or if they overstep their bounds and take to themselves authority God has not given them outside of the sphere of their authority. Otherwise, we submit, we obey. And spiritual leaders are given to be obeyed when they tell you the word of God. They go outside the bounds of God's word. You're not obliged to obey. But insofar as they bring the word of God to you, it will be to the good of your soul to obey them and yield to that teaching because you're yielding not to men, but to God. And if I were to add another application, I think there's a hint of the new covenant church here. Matthew says it more fully, but what does he say at the end there? In um, He says... Um, He will destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Kingdom was taken from Israel in 70 AD. And it was given to a, another nation, Matthew says, bearing the fruit of it. That's the new covenant community. That's the church. And by the way, don't let anybody say it is replacement theology. It is not replacement theology. It is fulfillment theology. The church doesn't replace Israel so much as it fulfills the promises. It is the true and new Israel of God. But that's only hinted at here. Let's pray. We'll sing and come to the supper. Oh, Lord, help us to learn from this parable the lessons that are contained in it. Lord, thank you for your great patience with us. Please be patient with those who are among us who are yet outside of the faith and draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.